Good morning. I apologize if I seemed a little less social this morning before the service. I got a cold this past week, uh, and then I spoke at Calvary Chapel at their staff retreat, and then I had a lunch at a really loud restaurant, and I haven't had a voice like until starting yesterday, and so I just thought, man, if I chatted up, I'm not going to make it through the end of this, but I'm feeling confident now, so this is good. This is good. We can talk afterwards if I've got any juice left. But it is so great to be with you guys this morning, and as Mason said, as we continue asking and answering questions, uh, we come really to the topic of suffering, and we're going to talk about it this Sunday and next Sunday and then the next Sunday, so three weeks on suffering, which, by the way, is hugely appropriate in the season of Lent. Why? Because this is the season in which we enter into the sufferings of our Lord. We deprive ourselves in various ways to kind of enter into the sufferings of the one who suffered for us, and we repent, and there's suffering in that. There's death in that. They're saying, I am going to die to this so that I might live to this. So it is a season of repentance. It is a season of deprivation. It is a season of fasting. It is a season of remembrance. And it is a season of anticipation of the day that is Easter. And that day changes everything. It's amazing. But it's also hugely appropriate because, as he said, when we sent out the, the big question of, okay, guys, send us, what, what do you want to hear about? What do you want to know? What does your family want to hear about? What do your coworkers want to hear about? And then we put all of these hundreds and hundreds of questions into categories. We realized when we looked at this category, this is the category that was weighted the most, like more questions on suffering than on any other topic. And so we're going to begin today with this question of how can a good God allow suffering? Although I'm going to tweak it a little bit because I want to begin this week by talking about our own personal suffering. We'll move on to the suffering of other people in future weeks, but, but I want the question to be, how can a good God allow me to suffer? Because when you're suffering, ask what you want to know. And instead of trying to answer that question for you myself, what I want to do is I want to take you to the Apostle Paul, and I want to do that because A, Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul is somebody who saw the risen Christ. And gave his life, by the way, proclaiming that. Paul wrote with the authority of the Lord. In other words, what he wrote reflects the very words of God on this topic and and beyond that. If you know anything about the life of the Apostle Paul, you know that this guy is a really famous sufferer. And in fact, he's recorded some, just some of his sufferings for us in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, where he says this, he says, are they, and I need to stop and tell you who the they are, because otherwise you won't know, and the they matters. So Paul goes to the city of Corinth, he spends two years of his life pouring everything that he has into this planting of a church, getting it up and running, loving these people, teaching these people, discipling these people, giving his life away for these people. Then he leaves, and this group, referred to here as the they, rise up within that church And they begin to question Paul's leadership, question Paul's character, question Paul's authority, question Paul's apostleship. They started saying, you know what, we're the apostles and he's not. And so now from a distance, he's having to deal with this and he's going to give us a list of all kinds of sufferings that are pretty remarkable here in a second. But honestly, I don't want to run by that because that's painful too. Anybody who has ever been betrayed knows that pain. Anybody who's ever had like their motives questioned knows that pain. Anybody who's ever been misrepresented, misunderstood, particularly by people who should know better because you've poured your life into them and they've maybe poured their life into you and you're like, wait, hang on a second. I thought we knew each other. Like, and now this, that hurts. Might rather take a beating. 
Maybe not, but we'll see. Paul's referring to this group. And these guys are saying, listen, compare us with Paul. So Paul says, fine, let's do that. He says, are they servants of Christ? In fact, elsewhere, he says they're not even Christians, but are they servants of Christ, he says. And then he says, I'm a better one. And then immediately he's embarrassed for having bragged. He says, I'm talking like a madman, but you've left me no choice. Like, this is where we're at, folks. So let's weigh it. Let's put me and them in a scale. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. With far greater labors, they're suffering in that. With far more imprisonments, you should have seen their prisons. With countless beatings and often near death, He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Why is it 40 less one? Because the guys that meted out this torture were professional executioners. They were really, really good at what they did. If they whipped you 40 times, much higher likelihood that you would die. So they just brought you within an inch of death and then they left you to recover. In Paul's case, five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned with rocks and then left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. And now listen to this. In danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers, from people who professed to be my friend but actually weren't. Ever experienced that? What is he describing? He's saying, guys, no matter where I've gone and no matter who I've gone there with... It's just been treachery. It's just been danger. It's been suffering. He continues in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things. There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches, and he's writing to a church that he's anxious over. Because of stuff like this, he's saying to them. And so he cries out, who is weak? And I am not weak. Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? And it's important for you to know what these guys were arguing in regard to Paul. They were saying Paul is not an apostle and here's the evidence. He's not an apostle because if he was, he wouldn't suffer all this stuff. Like, I mean, if God was really good and if God really loved him and if he was one of his precious children and even an apostle for crying out loud, he wouldn't suffer any, much less all of these things. And the reason I think that's relevant for us today is because I think we take up that exact same argument and apply it to ourselves when we're the sufferers. And our logic goes something like this. If God was really good, if God really loved me, if I was actually one of his precious children, then he wouldn't have introduced this into my life. Okay, so here's the part that I ask the worship team and all of our volunteers who meet every morning at 8.30 and, well, Sunday mornings at 8.30 before the service to pray for. I ask them to pray this for you guys today, and we did. It's so that you can receive this, because this is hard. It's actually because God is good. It is because He loves you. It is because if you have faith in Jesus, he has bought and purchased your life and you are one of his precious children that he introduces suffering into your life.
It's exactly the opposite of the way that we typically see it. And I say that, and I hope this will make sense to you, because you only seek to perfect that which you love. Is that not true? It's true of every parent. Like every parent can go, yeah, okay, I see that, I get that. Look, if we as parents, if all we ever demanded or commanded of our kids are the very things that we know already that they want to do in advance, we will ruin them. If we came to our teenagers and said, listen, I know you want to sleep in every day, so here's my command, thou shalt sleep in every day, even though that means you're going to fail out of school and you're going to lose your job and you're never going to develop into an employable, responsible, marriageable human being, thou shalt sleep in every day. If we came to our little ones and said, thou shalt eat dessert before dinner and breakfast and lunch, in fact, thou shalt determine thine own diet, eat whatever you want. Knock yourself out. We'll ruin him if we came to our kids and said, listen, thou shalt make sure that thou playest with thy friends whenever thou feelest like it. If that means you don't do your homework, fine. If that means you miss family dinners, fine. If that means you lose your job, fine. If that means, no, no matter what that means, go do that. Thou shalt, no, look, we will wreck our kids. We bring requirements. We bring demands. We bring discipline. We actually bring consequences upon our children that are massively uncomfortable from them and from their perspective are suffering. Why do we do that? Because we love them. Because we're doing everything that we can to be good parents. Good parents introduce parentally designed, parentally controlled, parentally ordained suffering into the lives of their kids for the good of their kids and for the good of people who end up in relationship with their kids. For the good of the people their kids end up raising someday. It's the way it works. And so it is with God and suffering in us. Listen to what Malcolm Muggridge said. Malcolm Muggridge was a very famous English journalist. He came to faith in Jesus very late in life. Brilliant, brilliant man. He says this about the effect of suffering on humanity. He says, supposing you eliminated suffering... What a dreadful place the world would be. I would almost rather eliminate happiness. The world would be the most ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature man to feel over-important and over-pleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now. But he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. So what does God do? He introduces God-designed, God-controlled, God-ordained suffering into our lives for our good and for the good of others. However, you know, kind of like our kids look at the suffering that we introduce into their lives, and they look at it very, very differently than we do. And when suffering enters into our lives, I think we tend to look at it very, very differently than God does. And here is the difference, and this is the crux of the matter. This is the whole point of the entire message. Suffering enters into our lives, and let's admit that it hurts. It is disruptive of our plans, of our hopes, of our dreams, maybe of our health or the health of people that we love. Like everything seems to blow up that we've worked so hard on for so long. It is really painful and difficult, and we pull out our Sharpie pens, and we pull out our labels, and we label it. And we label it bad. We write B-A-D. That's bad, by the way. And then we put that 
on it. And meanwhile, our God with His infinite mind, with His most beautiful and perfect perspective, who perceives things that we do not, who sees things that we just can't, who plans things that we don't have the capacity to understand, is sitting back going, really? You feel qualified to make that opinion? Are you absolutely certain that that's right? Give me the Sharpie. Let me tell you what it really is. It's G-O-O-D. Your suffering is good. Let that sit for a minute. Because that's where the Apostle Paul comes in. This really famous sufferer tells us in a whole variety of places, I'll just hit a few, why it is that our suffering is good. So he says suffering is good, first of all, because through suffering we come to know the mercy and the comfort of God in ways that we never otherwise would. And that what we gain in that equation, that fuller understanding of God, that fuller appreciation of God, that fuller experience of God, it's like, wow, there you are in a way that I never would have otherwise known you is more valuable than our loss. And you're like, I don't know, Tom, you don't know what I've lost. You're right. But the gain is God. We've got to put that in the scales. We've got to honestly, I think, weigh that. That's evidenced, I think, by Paul's response to suffering, fresh off a really great suffering experience. Not great as in it was fun, but great as in it almost killed him. In the city of Ephesus that he essentially flees for, for his life from, Paul then writes the book of 2 Corinthians. Notice how he starts. Verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which means that he responds to this suffering not with anger, not with bitterness, not with resentment, not with all of the things that my heart wants to run toward. He responds with worship. And it's not like a fake, false, phony worship. He's not trying to put a good face on for anybody. He's not going, oh, God, thank you for making my life fall apart. You know, just praise Jesus. That's just gross. Oh, Lord, pour the pain out so that I can turn it into praise. I want to punch that person, right? I mean, don't you? That's like, it's terrible. It's not true. Oh, Lord, leave me in the darkness because in the darkness is where I find you. It's where I feel your presence. No, it isn't. It's where you doubt his presence. It's where you wonder if he is, if you're honest. Paul, who knows so much about suffering and so much about God, and those things are connected. I think his worship goes more like this. Oh, Lord, I will praise you even though my life is falling apart. Because I trust in your as yet unseen promises. Wait a minute. What is faith? It is the assurance of things hoped for, hoped for, not received yet. The conviction of things, what? You know it, not seen. I'm going to praise you even though my life is falling apart because I trust in your as yet unseen promises, which is something I can only do by faith. And one of those promises to to take this big mess and to bring good out of it, Romans 8.28. Paul's the guy who tells us that. 
Or Lord, I'm going to praise you in and through my pain, knowing that there is meaning in my pain, even when I can't figure out how it could possibly be meaningful. Like there's just no way, it's way beyond my imagination. I can't figure this out. Nevertheless, you say that it is, and you say that it will end, even if I have to wait to the end of this life for it to end. And this life really isn't all that long, actually. Certainly not in comparison with eternity. And you tell me that it will end in eternal glory. So great, somehow, I'll be thankful for it. That sounds crazy. And it is apart from faith in a really great God. But Paul teaches us stuff like that. Romans 8, 18. Oh, Lord, I will praise you even in the midst of my darkness, knowing that out there there is light. And I know light's name. His name is Jesus. And he has secured for me an eternal day of light. So either the light's going to shine again in my life, in this life, or the light's going to just shine for forever. But light is coming. That's, how, that's the trajectory of the people of God. It's from darkness to light. It's from evening to morning. It's from death to life. And there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us that at the end of Romans 8. And so that's just one chapter. So he begins this discussion on suffering with a word of praise. And then he describes the God that he's praising. When he calls him the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, which then begs the question of how does Paul know God as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort? And the answer to that is in the same exact way that you and I can come to know God as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, through faith in Jesus, and then by faith in Jesus, taking our sufferings, and instead of rejecting them, instead of resenting them, instead of gritting our teeth and just making it our goal to get through them, placing them back into the hands of the God who designed them, who's controlling them, who's ordained them for our good and the good of others, and looking for the good. We need to look for the good. You know, it's funny, I've got like these little phrases, these mottos. Like, like my kids know my mottos. Some of our staff know my mottos. So one of my mottos is no surprises. Surprises are bad. I don't like to be surprised by things. And I don't think you do either, honestly. Particularly things that you probably should have known about and now all of a sudden you find out about and you're like, wait, what? what? You know, like nobody responds positively to that. So no surprises. Do the next right thing can't tell you how many times I've said that to my kids, to people I've had lunch with. They're like, what do you think I should do? I'd say, do the next right thing. So what do you think that is? And you know, sometimes you don't know, but most of the time you do know. It's just the hard thing. I'm going to add one. Look for the good. Guys, look for the good. Faith calls you to look for the good. The Bible comes and it tells you the good is there. The good has been sown. The good has been watered. The good is going to come up out of the ground, at least eventually. There's probably going to be a lot more good than you'll ever see in this life. But you know what? Here's another one of my phrases. You find what you're looking for, don't you? I tell that to kids who go to college, you know? They're like, oh, I'm not going to a party school, or I'm going to a party school, but I'm like, listen, you find what you're looking for. No matter where you go, You find what you're looking for in your spouse. You find what you're looking for in your kids or in your parents. You find what you're looking for. Look for the good because it's there. Even if you just catch it in glimpses. 
So suffering is good, first of all, because through suffering, we come to know the mercy and comfort of God in ways that we never otherwise would have. But suffering is good, secondly, because God uses our experience of his mercy and comfort to then bring mercy and comfort to others. And I say that because right after Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the worship service, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, he then says, who comforts us in all our affliction to what end? So that we may be able to comfort those other people in our lives, is the idea, who are in any affliction with the comfort of God with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Which means that if we keep our suffering to ourselves, we don't reveal that we're even in it. We're cut off, oftentimes, from the very people that God would use to bring his comfort and mercy into our lives. And we're cut off from people who need to know what we've experienced. We can't share what we're unwilling to share. And then see some good stuff come from it. And realize that it's been redeemed. You know, so like I've talked about anxiety here and I've said, you know, I have suffered with that and it's not fun. It's a bummer. Like if you've had that, you know that. But I've watched God bring good things out of it. You know, there's a young man in our church that I've sort of become friends with recently. He's been coming for the last couple of months and and we connected on that particular issue. And then he went to Alpha and he's come to faith in Jesus. And three Sundays ago at the sunrise, I was on Fort Lauderdale Beach with him and a group of his friends and and a few of you baptizing him in the, in the ocean, and it was amazing. But that point of identification was part of the story. Something good coming from it. You know, Ryan, our worship pastor, has told you that he has suffered with depression in the past. You know what? He has helped a lot of people who suffer with depression as a result of the fact that he's put it out there by faith, which is not an easy thing to do. Matt, our ministry operations pastor, has shared his history of suffering with addiction. He's probably helped thousands of people who suffer with addiction. I think of our own Dee Prieto, the founder of Trees of Hope. Trees of Hope is a sexual abuse prevention and and sexual abuse recovery ministry. When you look into Dee's past as a child, there is sexual abuse. And I don't think any sane person could call any of those things good. Anxiety, depression, addiction, sexual abuse, it's not good. But such is the power of God to take evil, awful things and to bring good things out of it, which is exactly what he did in Dee's life. He used that wound to drive her to the only one who could authentically heal her. That's Christ. And then to develop this ministry that has protected thousands of kids and continues to. She goes into businesses, into churches, into schools, and shares with families. It's remarkable. And thousands of people have gone through the healing. That's the trademark of God, guys. I mean, just think about it. What is the most evil, awful thing that has ever been done in the history of humankind? Is it not the taking of the perfect son of the living God? who in humility condescended to enter in amongst us, taking upon himself our flesh and blood, and whom we then criticized and ridiculed and stood against and beat and scourged and tortured and spit upon and crucified. You got anything that rivals that? And what did God do? Because it reveals his heart. He took that and transformed it into the single greatest thing that has ever happened for humanity. 
Because it is through faith in that Jesus and in his sufferings and in his death that the guilty are proclaimed innocent. Because the innocent one took our guilt. It's remarkable. So suffering is good when it's placed by faith back into the hands of the loving Heavenly Father who designed it, who controls it, who has ordained it for our good and for the good of other people. But then thirdly and finally, suffering is good because it provides a vehicle for proclaiming Jesus to the world that is unlike virtually any other vehicle that exists. And here's what I mean. I think that Jesus is best seen by us and through us in our weakness as opposed to our strength. Why? Because our weakness provides a vehicle for God to step in and show his power through. And when we see it in ourselves, we're like, good grief, that's not me. And I uniquely know that. And when other people who know what's going on in our lives see that power, they're like, okay, yeah, that's not them. That must be the Lord. I think that Jesus is best seen by us and through us in our seasons of sorrow as opposed to our seasons of joy. Why? Because our season of sorrow becomes a vehicle through which God can then introduce his overcoming joy. I think Jesus is best seen by and through us in our seasons of suffering as opposed to those times in life when it seems like, you know, everything's just kind of going our way. I mean, let's be honest. When we worship our God, when everything seems to be going our way, the other people in our lives who know that we worship that particular God are really probably not all that impressed. Everything's going your way. Why would you not worship? It's when nothing is going our way that they kind of sit up in their chair and go, wow. That's when they see the value. That's when they see the authenticity. That's when they see the commitment. So then Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 7, he talks of a treasure. He says, we have this treasure. You're like, what's the treasure? Well, in the previous verse, he made it clear that the treasure is the gospel. It's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who incidentally is almighty God who left heaven to enter into this world, clothed in our weakness, so that in our weakness we might know his power. He's almighty God who knew nothing but joy, yet who entered into this world as a man of sorrows so that in our sorrows we might know joy. He's almighty God who knew nothing but comfort and life, but who came here, suffered and died so that in our suffering and death we might know his comfort in life and so that our lives might end the same way that his did. You're like, on a cross? No. In resurrection... And eternal glory, Paul says, look, we have this treasure of the gospel of Jesus in jars of clay, which is a reference to our bodies. And you say, well, why would God choose to display something so precious and something so powerful and something so common and so very fragile? He tells us, he says, to show that the surpassing power that you see displayed common people who are so very fragile belongs to God and not to us. And so to that end, Paul just starts laying it out. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but hey, you know what? We are not crushed. We should be, but the power of Christ is being displayed in us. We are perplexed. I love that he believes that in there. Like, I'm so thankful that that's there. It's relieving to me because he's saying, we're confused. Like, we we scratch our heads and wonder what in the world's going on. Like, we are perplexed. 
but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death, he says, from experience, and he means of all kinds, for Jesus' sake. Death of plans, death of ambitions, death of dreams, death of hopes, death of comfort, death of finances, death of health. In Paul's case, death of life itself. This man suffered all of these things, and then he was decapitated for preaching the gospel and for claiming, incidentally, that he had seen a risen Jesus. Why would he do that if he had not seen a risen Jesus? It's remarkable. So he says from experience that we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. What do you mean, Paul? So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh as the people of this world get to see a power that is not ours and get to realize that we value something or someone, in this case, more than life itself. He says, so then, death is at work in us, but as a result, life is at work in you. So when we ask, how can a good God allow me to suffer? What's the mistake we're making? We're making the mistake of assuming that it's bad. It feels bad. It looks bad. But Almighty God says, no, you know what? It's good. It's good. So I close with two questions. The first one is easy. How are you suffering right now? You know that, right? You got that dialed in. We don't need to spend a lot of time on that. Okay, question number two. What are you doing with your suffering? Are you responding with bitterness and anger and some other negative emotion? It's easy. I get that. Or are you trusting in God's promises and believing in his good purposes, even when you can't figure out what they are or see them? Are you rejecting your suffering and gritting your teeth and just making it your goal to somehow get through? I get that too. Or are you saying, you know what, Lord, I'm going to look for the good. You tell me it's there. <laughs> I'm begging you to show me a little of it. I'm going to embrace this as an opportunity to learn and to grow, to be made different for your glory. So I'm going to place this in your hands and walk with you in it. Are you hiding your suffering? Because that's what pride tells us to do. Just don't let anybody know. That cuts you off from God's help and mercy. And it it makes it so that you can't help anybody else and see it redeemed. And then lastly, how are you using your weaknesses and sorrows and sufferings to proclaim Jesus? Because that is oftentimes the loudest way to make him known. So I want you guys to think about all of that as we come to the table this morning. We have the privilege of doing that. We've decided throughout the Lent season to do this each week and to slow things down and to make some space, really to, to deal with the Lord at the time, to talk to him. 
And I want to tell you whose table this is. This is the table of the Lord. It's bought and paid for by the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. The broken bread represents the body. The the wine, or in our case, the juice, represents his blood. If you're going to come to this table, come to it authentically. And what I mean by that is come to it as someone who has said yes. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is my Lord. He confuses me. I'm perplexed and tempted to despair sometimes. But I trust in Him. And I come to receive outwardly what I've already received inwardly. And that is the life of Jesus. And the joy of knowing that I'm forgiven. And no matter how it ends, it ends in glory for me. If that is you, then by all means come to the table. If that is not you, then please know that that is exactly what Jesus offers to you. And take this time to consider that and be sure to talk to one of us after the service because we'd love to at least try to answer your questions or, or talk to you about that if we can do that, okay? But the Apostle Paul says this. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Mason's going to come up and he's going to lead us kind of in a time of reflection. So take your time. And, and speak with the Lord in this season, if you would.